there, it's Megan, and you're listening to Better Product, the show where we celebrate great products and the people and processes that make them stronger. Today we're trying something new, and it might get a little wild, so buckle up. We're bringing in our producer, Erica, into the conversation today. So hey, Erica, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Finally glad to get out of the corner of this room and join the conversation and be here with you guys today. So thank you. Erica is in the room with me in Indy and Megan, you are still in New York. Um, so Erica can like literally kick me if I go off script. Actually, this yeah. whole thing is off script. So. I think I prefer punches. <laughs> oh yeah, she's more of a puncher. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, usually she sits in the corner like a boxing coach and just like anger <laughs> whispers at Christian. Yeah. So let's, uh, so Erica, um, why don't you sort of give a little introduction? Mm -hmm. I mean, we've introduced you before on the show, but I'd love to, I think people would like to know sort of what your role will be on this type, this new format. Yeah, absolutely. So um, here with Christian and Megan, I work with them at Innovate Map as a better product community manager. So for many of our listeners, you are in the community, you are product professionals, you listen to this podcast and our other resources to learn more about product. And that's what I focus my role on. So I'm always looking for the questions that you have, the problems you're encountering, and we're trying to create great content to answer those questions and keep the conversation going. And so as for why we are trying out this new format, um, I'm going to be acting as a moderator. So you can see me um, as your advocate, the listener advocate. Um, I'm here to really think in your shoes and consider what questions you might have as we have this conversation today. In the future, I would love to hear you know, directly from you and kind of be that channel uh, to Christian and Megan. So always know um, I'm available. My email will be in the show notes. And yeah, that's what we're doing. So your email will now be the one that gets all the people trying to pitch us on uh, some really smart guests that we should have on the show. Yeah, Absolutely. all I mean. those people. Yeah. yeah, spam me. I love the spam. Yeah, she loves spam. <laughs> So do you want to sort of kick off what, what we're going to talk about today? Absolutely. So today we are talking about not really a new concept, but one that's really integral to product and product thinking, and that's growth design. Um, we had a great question from a community member, you know, about what resources we had available. So we thought this would be a good time to have a conversation about what it is and how product people can use it in today's context. So um, Christian and Megan, just to get us kicked off, I'd love to know how you define growth design. What does it mean to you? Well, I started, I think the first time I heard about growth design was 2016, maybe. And I truthfully thought it was bullshit at first because I was just like, ah, whatever. There's always some new I means you have to understand, like in UX design, even UX wasn't the term we used when I was in grad school. 2005 to 2007 but since then it's just been like ux came around as a term and product design so there's like this desire amongst designers to constantly reinvent themselves or to make them i don't know i can say this because i have a design background but like i think we want to think we're really important so we change the names of what we do to glorify it so that was if i'm being totally honest like my first thought on growth design, oh, this is just some other made up thing. And so that was my reaction. So I kind of just rejected learning about it. Um, but over the years, I think it's evolved. I subscribed to a growth design newsletter. That was like, all right, I need to stop hating and just learn about it. And so I first started seeing growth design as something that 
sort of transaction oriented products. It's like Amazon or like things in e-com, like, because you could start tying revenue to design decisions. So I think that, at least from my perspective, where growth design started taking off. And then uh, when product-led growth came out, I think growth design saw another upswing in growth because it was this layer of design on top of UX design that was more around designing things that like helped the product grow, create more revenue. So we had you know, a couple of people from the growth design team at Pinterest on the show a couple of years ago. And that was actually the conversation that got me to really understand what it was. And they're really tasked with, okay, you're going to design these features at Pinterest, but how are they helping create adoption? How are we tracking, you know, growth, mm-hmm. like adding more users, things like that. So I think that's kind of like at the most basic level, growth design is about designing the things that encourage growth and revenue and users. Absolutely. And Megan, yeah. that, yeah. Go for it, Erica. Say, and Megan, that ties, you know, so well to your role at Innovate Map, uh, doing product marketing and brand. So could I'd love for you to describe maybe like what the application of growth design looks like um, and how it impacts marketing specifically. Yeah, I think that I agree with everything Christian said, even down to like, you know, the skepticism of it at first. There's always some new movement and you never know which ones are actually going to be impactful and which ones are going to fade in a couple months. But growth design has stuck around for a reason. And I think a big part of it, obviously, is UX. Um, But a lot of it is also applying UX to some sort of a decision that product marketing has already made. And when I'm I'm thinking more like on the website. So obviously product management is making those feature and product decisions that then UX activates. But on something like a website, product marketers are in charge of the flow and the content and the copy and building out exactly how we want a person to make their way through the site to eventually get to that pricing page to eventually contract And it's not just copy and content that gets a person there. A lot of that is design, kind of a combo of brand and UX design to get there. Well, I think you said too, because like you talked about bringing UX to like the surface, like to the website. And then as a design, as a UX designer, I feel like growth design requires bringing product marketing down to the products. Like you hear about things, even like micro copy or UX writing Um, You talk about the pricing page. I mean, that was like in the old days. Okay. But for the record, when I say old days, I'm like, when I started my career, like the early 2000s, there's older days than that. But back then you were not ever going to like go add on to your subscription or Mm -hmm. to uh, buy a new feature inside the product, but Mm -hmm. you see that happen all the time now. So back then, like literally when I started my career, product marketing was literally in a different building. So we weren't really even talking because we didn't interact. Now everything's sort of blurry. And and then when you're designing a product, if you're designing a tool like Pipedrive, that's a that's a tool we use to manage deal flow with, with sales and it's our CRM. I had to upgrade last week because I wanted to try this new feature. I do it right from inside the product. So somewhere down the line, there's a designer who was designing these features, but then had to sort of like talk to product marketing and say, hey, how do you want to reference this feature? How do you want to upsell? So I feel like, you know, your lens is looking at UX coming to product marketing. I almost think it's also this other way too. It's mm-hmm. it's it's really intersecting on both, both sides. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Onboarding is one, uh, probably the main place where product marketing comes into play, like just that user enablement copy 
uh, is a huge piece of growth design. And then obviously users enabling other users is product-led growth. And that kind of feeds into that as well. Yeah. So what I'm hearing here, just for our listeners, you know, growth design is a concept with many intersecting parts. You can't really think about it in a silo, which is true for many of the topics we talk about on Better Product, right? Christian, you've kind of spoken to this this evolution of how people think about growth design and how different product disciplines work together to achieve it. As our listeners, um, I'm sure are aware, you know, we're living in a time where the internet is changing. The infrastructure in which we are building digital products is changing. Thinking about Web3 and decentralization specifically here. How are those considerations affecting growth design and how product people do that? So like we need like a little sound effect to play when someone says Web3. It's like they're like, <laughs> yeah, this is you like know a- <laughs> what? what? Yeah. I am so already I'm already so sick about hearing of Web3. Well, I'm already over the too, new internet. So- but it's you know what? Me. You know what's funny is the last time I said I'm already so sick of hearing about this was two weeks into COVID. So Ouch. we'll see. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't have well, a pretty good so track here record. We, here we are, and I'm admitting to I was sick of growth design, and that was like years ago. Maybe yeah. that's just me and you, Megan. Like that's just our thing. It's we reject. I think both of us are kind of contrarian. So when there's a new trend, we're just like, oh, this is stupid, and then it's like. Yeah. Well, all right, fine. Let's dig in and learn what this is. And I'm like, okay, you know what? There's something here. But yeah, you're you're in. Yeah, like... we both reject reality. It sounds wow. like <laughs> this is a good time for you to jump in, Erica. Same. When we start rejecting reality, yeah, maybe the we need to ascend reality though. Like, why reject it? Like, I think. Oh, you're saying ascend? Ascend. Like in what way? Like rise above reality? Well, yeah, because like. I don't know, you need to have a higher perspective to really understand I'm going nowhere with this. Well, so we also like, need a buzzard for when Erica puts us in our place. Well, so like, like what she's describing is we don't just want to join the cult initially. That's what right, I yeah. say, right? Because there are obviously yeah. steep implications. You know, Web3 is not absolutely fully formed yet. It's just, you know, in its early stages, we're in the messy middle. But I'd love to know, like, just any observations you have about how that might impact how we think about growth design. Yeah, like, if you take growth design and just say that that's sort of a a flavor of, you know, of a cross between, like, UX and brand design, it's just here to stay, then you can look and say, well, originally it made sense that it was really transaction, e-com oriented, and then it sort of shifted to this product-led growth. And now we're looking at another shift with Web3. Um, I would say that this is like super, we're in the middle. So nothing I say, I say with like supreme confidence, but- Unless it ends up being right. What's that? Unless it ends up being right. Oh yeah. So like if it's, <laughs> if it's right, we're able to go edit out my hedging. So yeah. we, we can do it later. And just like, well, did you hear Christian say this years ago? So yeah, like if I look at Web3, the, the whole thing that's fundamental to Web3 is an acknowledgement that it's totally new and nobody knows. So there's a lot more experimentation going on. So I would say that growth designers right now, if you're building a Web3 product, have to be even more flexible to even figure out what are the growth metrics that you're looking for. Like it's really easy in e-com in some degree because you're like, you know that you're trying to increase like basket size or you're trying to decrease abandoned shopping carts. Those are really well-known metrics. And then a product-led growth, you might be like, well, we want to look at how many times, you know, somebody, 
you know, adds, you know, someone to their account or whatever. Now in Web3, we actually don't have those metrics because nobody knows fully what they're doing. So I would, I would probably say that growth designers as they're attached to Web3 should be careful not to apply like these old playbooks to it and actually mm. realize that you're kind of having to figure out what are the things you're trying to grow in the beginning. Mm. And I think one of those things, actually, we kind of already said is you're trying to grow the number of people who are even like out of that hesitancy phase. Like you need to grow, especially with brand and with messaging, you need to grow the base of people that's even considering using a Web3 product and actually dipping their foot into that pool. Do you think, all right, so Megan, here's the thing that I think I was, I don't know if I was talking about with you or Erica recently about how the whole space of Web3 is still kind of like unknown mm -hmm. and you don't even have something solid to work with as a product marketer. So do you feel like that responsibility, so if you're building a new product inside of Web3, you don't just have as a product marketer the responsibility to connect the value to a potential buyer but do you feel like there's some responsibility on the product marketer to also translate like what the hell Web3 even is? Or do you oh, have yeah. to just work within what you have? No, I think you absolutely do. Because if you just work with what you have, you end up throwing out a bunch of buzzwords. I think you need to, as a product marketer, the best product marketers truly understand, let's say, enough to be dangerous about the product that they are marketing and explaining. And... It, it, with something new like this, there's going to be a lot more of a lift to explain mm -hmm. what it is first before you can explain the value. It's similar to what we just talked about with category creation, that you need to do a lot more effort up front in education True. before you can really communicate value. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I totally forgot the connection to category creation is good because we yeah. are Web3 really is this like broader level category, this broader level technology that we're not sure like how far it can go i mean another mm. good example would be nfts themselves there's the nfts that we talk about in the news or on twitter which is you know people selling you know collectibles at insane prices but then there's this other usage of nft which is emerging which is around like membership to communities and it's like oh i hadn't even thought about that then how do you come explain if you were to build a product that leveraged nfts in a different way you now have the burden of explaining mm -hmm. NFTs in a way someone never heard about it. And then once you get through that, you can be like, oh, and by the way, here's what this does. And like, oh, okay, I get it. It, it, it seems really tough to do all of that together. Either yeah. that or you combine it with something that is already familiar and that already exists. And actually one example of that I saw yesterday, I think, was there's now an NFT vending machine in New York. Like so a it's like a vending machine. Yeah, like a physical vending machine. You go up, you pay for. I guess it takes credit card or the, whatever Coinbase wallet, and you pay for the NFT in the vending machine, and it spits out a code, and then you go home and like put the code in, and you have it. Weird. Wow. Yeah. Huh. I have to look that up. Interesting. So to to the concept here, what I'm hearing is you need to have this foundation with your audience what it is you're trying to achieve and only then you can start thinking about growth design. Is that fair? Yeah. And I think the ways to create that foundation are yeah. do something familiar, like mm -hmm. use, you know, it's almost like where startups compare themselves or describe themselves as we're Uber for this. Mm -hmm. So like start with something familiar that they already understand and explain it that way or 
go through a lot more intentional effort around education, similar to what you'd have to do for category creation. I had, I had somehow this feels relevant, but I, I had a few people on my Twitter feed um, criticize Coinbase for their ad because they thought with that ad time, you should explain crypto. And my response was like, well, I mean, like, that's not really the job of an ad to educate. And so they got a lot of people. I think there's been numbers that have come out that are available where they can show that it was generally a pass. Yeah, but but then I actually started thinking deep deeper about it, Megan. Like, what? How would you get educated? And to me, that's where it like starts to fall into growth design. It actually starts falling inside the product itself. Like, Coinbase does a pretty good job of trying to get at the more mainstream. Like, if you get the app, it explains what these uh, crypto coins are, like what the projects are. It tries to sort of educate you. It doesn't just assume. And in fact, I would say most people that are like crypto diehards probably don't even use it because, you know, they've got something that they a, a different exchange they use. That's for like the cool people. But Coinbase is always educated. And to me, that's a growth design thing, because if you're operating in this new space, education about the space is just as important as like the product itself. And I just kind of felt like that was a case where they pushed that decision away from the like ad that got you in it and put it inside the product. So we just want you to get you to sign up, then you sign up and start getting educated on on crypto and then on Coinbase. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great example because Coinbase does have really good onboarding and they also have like an in-app education feature essentially where you can win different types of crypto by going through and taking like learning about and taking a quiz on that crypto and they'll give you like a little piece of it. So they've even built like quizzes and education into the product. But it, Christian, one thing I wanted to comment on that you said is, um, yeah, people talking about they should have educated us, told us what crypto is in this ad. That is just the, that's the line between marketing and product marketing. Marketing is never responsible for education. Marketing is responsible for enticing and exciting and generating interest. Product marketing is responsible for education if necessary. Wow, that's that was well That's said. Great. Yeah. yeah. Really good insight for our product marketers and marketers listening to the show. Can I say one thing? Because I tweeted this and it was really, I thought clever. Yeah, sure. So in that, <laughs> no comment. I, to, to, <laughs> uh, Erica made a face that was like, no, don't, but I'm going to say it anyway, because <laughs> there's, there's no stopping him. I've, well, seen, I've seen your tweets. You, oh, well, that was why she was cringing. She's like, oh God, which tweet? No, but it, it was actually perfect what you said, Megan, because I likened it to that quintessential Apple ad from that was like the 1984, Mm. like big brother from the eighties. And I was like, that's almost like the equivalent of them taking that ad and explaining desktop computing instead of that. And I was like, because at that time, desktop computing, like personal computers was still like really new. And instead of educating people on that, they just went totally different. We're like smashing IBM big brother to your point, Megan, that was like exciting. It got you interested. And then you went and got educated later. Some people say it's the best out of all time. Yeah, so. that's pretty funny. Be true. But to this point, um, I love to think about how growth design impacts the different stages of a product's development. So obviously you're going to think about it, or maybe you're not thinking about it at all, like when you're first ideating on a product. So maybe you can walk the listeners through how do you think about and leverage growth design at different stages as you scale? I think that this is what Andrew Chen, what I don't remember. I think he works anyway. Andrew Chen is at a famous VC firm. I can't remember which one, but I've always followed him on Twitter. 
he's a really good blend of like business insights and product, but he had a book come out recently called the cold start problem. Mm -hmm. I still have not yet read it, but the whole premise of it, I've read a few chapters that he's posted before the book came out. And, um, I bring it up to answer your question, Erica, because the whole problem is when you're coming with a product from a cold start, meaning you're starting with nothing. And a lot of the growth design, a lot of the people, the thought leaders in the space are talking about it from large businesses. Even us, we've had you know people from Pinterest talking and that doesn't work when you actually don't have customers, you don't have users. And so some of the tactics that you do in the beginning are very different. And I think sometimes people tend to, in the early stages of a product, forget that. And so they apply these methods or they try to measure things when there's just not enough sample data to even measure. Um, we talked about it with Web3, like you don't even know what you should be measuring. So I would say growth design in the early stages, personally, this is probably a debatable. I would not be thinking about it that much. I would really just be leveraging like the human capital to go connect to people, to learn what's resonating with them rather than leaning fully on brand or, or product marketing and just website SEO tactics to get people in. I think what you're really trying to do in the very first stage is just get something valuable and see if it's valuable, but not jumping ahead to, okay, how do we grow this? How do we get more people into the products? Like, hold on the first stage. I wouldn't even be worrying about that. Yeah, I agree with that. You have to get the product right before you try to bring a million people in. I think if you're thinking about growth design in the early stages at all, it's probably from a product marketing perspective and even further than that from like an education lens, just keeping in mind, are we going to need to educate people about the value behind this? Like if I'm a founder, I have this grand vision. I see this problem. It's probably not going to hit most people as a problem for another five to seven years, but I'm going to start now. So I get the jump on this. I probably should be thinking I'm going to need to do some education before then, because there's no way that I'm going to sit around for five to seven years before people really realize what we're going to be providing them. Sure. I think too, this also could be debatable, Megan, but I've observed this with the way you've sort of evolved. And we didn't get to really talk about the way we use Figma right now, but to me, the usage of Figma kind of shows how this blends. So what I mean is in the early stages of a product, I feel, I will not say siloed, but I almost feel like it's assembly line. Like you start with product, you start you know, designing it, you develop it. Now it can still be agile and sprint, but like you hand things off and that was what we did a lot as an agency. We would design features and then product marketing might be working in parallel, but we kind of hand things off at some point and stay focused on the product. Over time, as a product grows and you start knowing what you have, I wouldn't even say it's enough to say that, oh, you get more collaborative. It's not handing a Figma file off to product marketing. It's actually product marketing getting into your Figma file and making changes to it. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts to become tighter over time, but I don't think it has to start that way in the beginning. What Figma did there is that they truly enable growth design with their commenting features, with other things that let users who aren't designers get in and see the file and even comment on it. And then those users, maybe product marketers like myself think, I wish I didn't have to comment on this and then wait for the designer to make that change. I wish I could just get in and like make this tiny copy tweak right now by myself and not mess up the design. And that is how Figma converts paying users. I would also add to that it's useful. So this has been the other thing that we've been dealing with internally as we get more growth design is like, how do you almost think about growth design features? So 
you have a base set of features with a product, but then you need growth design hacks. You need ways that can sort of like get people into it. It's like referrals or just like you get extra space if you invite people. Like in Coinbase, you get money if you, you invite. But where do those ideas come from? Because I would say like UX designers are typically not thinking about that. They're really good at thinking mm -hmm. through like easy ways to do things or like what if this was easier or faster to do? Product marketers are better thinking about that but they need to get involved early on and actually contribute to, all right, we're gonna carve out some space for just truly growth design features. I would be bringing product marketers in there to brainstorm like, what are ways that we could build things that would encourage adoption or engagement as well? Sure. You have to optimize everyone's strengths. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I think acknowledging that, because I even as Megan was talking, I was reflecting on even, as a UX designer, I re rejected exactly what you just said. I was like, I wanted my design files. They didn't want anybody to touch them. So I was like, you're not an expert. I am. But when it comes to growth design, you actually all have different expertise that's like tied into that problem, I think. Right. Like Christian, when it comes to copy, you're not the expert. I am, you know? So it's like well, that same push and pull like, or hopefully collaboration. Yeah. Out. We were never working. Thank you. I've, yeah. I've, I've, I've said, yeah, that's actually true. Every name, I've been involved in like name brainstorming. My name's never been picked. Every time I come up with messaging, it's always something like, oh, that's that's interesting, Christian. That's a really, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go, yeah, I'm going to consider that. And somehow it never makes it on the webpage. Christian's not bitter. He's no, not, I'm not. He's not bitter. And I'm not crying. <laughs> so Well, it's before fine. tears are shed, I think this is a great place to stop. Wonderful conversation about growth design. Thank you, Christian and Megan, for talking about these interesting intersections um, more so than just the applications. I think that's really going to help our listeners um, understand this topic better. And with that, as we've reached the end of our first moderated episode, truly appreciate everyone's time. And for our listeners, don't forget, please send your responses our way. Um, if you hate what we said today, love it. Feel free to get in touch. The best way to do that, you can join our Better Products Slack community and you can DM me, DM Megan, Christian, however much you need to and stay connected. So thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Better Product. Thanks for joining us. And if you haven't yet, be sure to join the Better Product community. We've got all sorts of content and resources for you. And if you want more audio, don't forget... The Business of Product is our latest show to join the Better Product Network, and you can find that and more at betterproduct.community.